This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A cyber attack knocked city services offline in Baltimore this month. Computers remained frozen for weeks. Just the latest reminder of the threats hackers pose. Well, Colorado has become a center for cybersecurity, and it's the focus of Disruptors today, our coverage of new ideas in business. To discuss the cybersecurity landscape here and the vulnerabilities in our daily digital lives, Mark Turnage joins us. His company, Dark Owl, monitors criminals on the dark web. And Fred Knipe is CEO of CyberGRX, which does risk assessments. Both companies are based in Denver. And gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Mark, I'd like to start with that attack in Baltimore, which is incidentally about the same size of Denver. Uh, think of all the information a city keeps on us. I mean, our addresses, payment information, financial history. Tell us about what happened in Baltimore and whether it could happen elsewhere. Uh, well, the short answer is yes, it can and will happen elsewhere. Um, you know, Baltimore, like any large organization, will have hundreds and thousands of computers, phones, uh, networks, old some old hardware, some new so- uh, hardware, and um in this case, uh, the city of Baltimore's computers were infected by uh, ransomware. So it does not appear that somebody was trying to steal uh, private information. They shut down the network and they showed up with a ransom request uh, to effectively decrypt the the computers and make them usable again. Yeah. So ransom is the operative word here. Tell us just very briefly how ransomware works. So the way it way it works is um, uh, a hacker will infect uh, a, a network of computers and effectively encrypt all the data that's on those computers. And then the uh, organization, in this case, the city of Baltimore, has to pay, a, if it chooses to, pay a ransom in Bitcoin generally. And they will receive the key to then effectively uh, unencrypt uh, all that data and make their computers useful again. Uh, Computers, I should say, at the Colorado Department of Transportation were attacked twice last year. Uh, Fred, cyber attacks are in the news all the time. Uh, But I I imagine there are many others that don't get made public. Oh, you're only hearing about a small fraction of what's actually happening out there. And those that make it uh, into the public through a ransomware demand or a public-facing organization like Baltimore and such. But the vast majority of organizations are facing daily attacks um, and often are dealing with them offline and such and don't really want to make that public. Uh, There are a variety of new reporting requirements that people are facing that they have to make public, and the SEC and others are starting to push people in that direction. Um, The other thing about it is, is you can only report on it if you know about it. Uh, one of the scariest things in cybersecurity is when you learn about a, uh, a breach or some of that sort, they'll often say, oh, they were in the network for 100 days or some of that sort. So the companies are often um, infiltrated through an attack, and it only you know, sometimes years later do they realize that they were exposed. Oh, my goodness. And what has happened over those 100 days? That takes you know all the forensic work to kind of go in and, and try and understand, okay, they were here. Where did they go? What did they take? What was exfiltrated is the, the term of kind of taking out of our network. And um, looking back to say, wow, that's you know they got access to a sensitive area with credit card information or some of that sort. And that's when those things start to bubble up to the news. Mark, what's going on in terms of the dark web, which Dark Owl focuses on that's so nefarious? Help us understand that. Well, the dark net is that area of the internet where... Um, Uh, users' identities are anonymized, 
And so it's a perfect place for people to go and buy and sell uh, the hacked and stolen data that Fred's just referenced. Um, it is the marketplace at which this this type of data is bought and sold. And how do you possibly monitor what's going on there if it's anonymized? Well, that therein lies the, the challenge. And uh, we have figured out a way to effectively monitor what goes on in most of the darknet. And our clients, which are law enforcement and other cybersecurity companies, use that data to monitor for, on behalf of their clients or conduct investigations. So who, what can you say about who operates on the dark web? Uh, a lot of bad actors, uh, you know. Well, I, mean, I figured that. <laughs> what, kind, <laughs> what kind of um, bad actors? Um, everything from, as I mentioned, sale of uh, hacked and stolen data to guns, drugs are bought and sold on the darknet. Uh, a fair amount of human trafficking has migrated to the darknet. One interesting uh, new area we've seen in the darknet recently is uh, sale of endangered wildlife. So, if you want to buy a rare snake, or you're a collector of rare, you know, endangered animals. Uh, a lot of that has migrated to the dark. Is there some sense that terrorism is being funded through the dark web? There's no question. I mean, one of the main uses for the dark net is secure communication and chat rooms. And um, we see plenty of uh, and, and one of the use cases for our platform is counterintelligence. As I mentioned, Colorado has become an epicenter for cybersecurity. Fred, your firm, CyberGRX, tackles a problem I'd really never given thought to. But you help companies that contract or outsource to ensure that their contractors are secure. Um, I understand the infamous target breach in 2013 is a good illustration of why this is important. Spell that out for us. Sure. So, and exactly as you're saying, uh, one of the things that we've identified in the kind of the the corporate world is over 60% of uh, reported breaches today involve a third party, not actually someone attacking that environment. They're attacking one of your suppliers or one of your uh, um, vendors, and then using that to get into your network or access your information. So you are, let's say, Acme Staple Company, and Acme Staple Company has great defenses, but Acme Staple Company has an HVAC contract exactly or, right. or something like that, and they're not as That's right. secure. And this is true of that target breach. So the target breach, um, the... Uh, the breach actually was perpetrated through, I think it was called DeFazio Air Conditioner or something of that sort. And that company um, was f- covering the HVAC systems for the Target stores, but they had network access to run diagnostics and look across the whole ecosystem. So the attacker said, wow, let's go t- look at eight, uh, this company. They had weaker security, easily compromised, but had network credentials. So they used that to get into Target and then work their way to find the credit card information. So a company is only as secure as its least secure contractor in a way. That's correct. I mean, there are other preventive controls you can have to contain some of that. But yes, and you're seeing more and more as companies grow, they use more and more services. If anyone you know talks to a marketing team like, oh, yeah, I brought on three new tools here to go and we gave all of our customer data to them. Et Guess what? You just put all your customer data into a whole new product. And so you are creating, I uh, could I call it like a Moody's <laughs> for, yeah. for rating cybersecurity? That's actually very, very um, accurate. And what we've done is is basically said, let's go and CyberGRX assesses the security of countless third parties out there, ranging from Salesforce and AWS down to small law firms. And then we house that data 
in a central location allow it to be shared or used by multiple customers, just like a Moody's or S&P rating, uh, and that data behind that is used for making investment decisions. AWS, you'll forgive me. What's that? Oh, acronym? sorry. Um, Amazon Web Services. Okay. The, 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 uh, in the industry right now, it is the most commonly used platform for, um, for hosting of uh, companies' environments. But once again, another contract Correct. and another potential vulnerable contractor. Mark, what explains why Colorado is becoming a center for cybersecurity? I certainly think of the National Cybersecurity Center fairly new in Colorado Springs. What what else? Oh, I think there's a range of factors that explain why Colorado has become a, a hub for cybersecurity companies. I think uh, first and foremost, it has a technology, and it's all technology basically. You have engineers, project management, coders, software engineers, uh, people that can be hired. Uh, so there's a skill set there. Um, there's a there's an ecosystem around it, which is lawyers uh, who can understand the specific problems of software and and cybersecurity, mm-hmm. uh, capital sources that are available, um, and you know our education capital is, sources. In other words, there's funding for this. There's funding, okay. and both both outside the state and inside the state. Um, and then, you know, the educational institutions have really taken uh, the bit in the teeth and started to um, turn out, in, uh, you know, trained and skilled employees. So DU has a master's in cybersecurity. It was introduced several years ago. We, My company has hired a number of employees from that program. Regis has a well-regarded national program in cybersecurity. Both DU and Metro State are rolling out programs. So I think the educational institutions combined with the um, – uh, you know, with the general environment, create an environment where people, I mean, Fred's company, you relocated here, did you not? That's correct. So we, we started in uh, Westport, Connecticut and moved to, to Denver. And a lot of those reasons is really the access to talent that, that are being generated by the universities and such. The um, the friendly environment from the government, from Hickenlooper, really focused on this, as well as uh, Jerry Polis now in the same way. Um, the other element of this is is kind of a quality of life element that we're seeing. We're recruiting people from New York or San Francisco who are just ready to move off the coasts and, and say Denver is a place that really grows and it's it's really building upon itself. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And as part of Disruptors, our coverage of emerging ideas in business. We're talking about the growing epicenter that Colorado has become for cybersecurity. You both mentioned workforce, and I think it's well known that generally there are more cybersecurity jobs than workers. Uh, I think of a Colorado company called SecureSet, which actually trains folks for this sector. Why is it difficult to recruit workers? I mean, the pay is pretty good. It's a matter of training too, and, and availability. And the you think about it is one thing is to come out of school and say, okay, I've learned the X, Y, and Z of here's you know the the formulas for cybersecurity and such. There's an element of on the job training experience and going through that really is required to be successful in a lot of these different fields. SecureSet is a phenomenal uh, organization. We actually have hired several people from them and enjoy their services because. They help take people who have a great IT background and then overlay cybersecurity capabilities on top of that. I'm curious, Mark, do you, you have to have an IT background to, to do well in cybersecurity? Well, I mean, to use the example that Fred was just discussing of SecureSet Academy, uh, they will take students who have no IT background. They huh. will obviously take students who have IT background as well. And, and the same is true for DU's Master's in Cybersecurity. You can go to that program with no IT background, mm-hmm. and they will give you a, a, a base set of skills where a company like mine or a company like Fred's can then uh, give you specific experience uh, and, and use you as, a, as an employee in that basis. Is there an aspect of cybersecurity that you think needs more attention, uh, an opportunity for the next entrepreneurs? 
Well, I think there, you know, there are endless areas for companies to be built in this. I think we are at the front end of a generational cycle. I, I always say to, to my own employees and to the students we interview from these various programs, you're really smart to move into cyber because you've just bought a guarantee of lifetime employment. Cybersecurity is a, as a, both an opportunity and as a problem is not going away anytime soon. Give me an example of a problem that persists, Fred. I mean, it has I, to be solved. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll say right now, the, the third party element that we focus on is kind of a terrifying in its own right, because companies spend so much time focusing on just starting, just starting to secure their own environment. They haven't even thought about where is that data going next. And the um, one of the scarier things in the cyber realm is just where we are as a country, as a, as a world in that case, um, of just starting to pick up some of the elements around this. Just even, even look, go back to the Baltimore breach that you mentioned, some basic patching could have probably alleviated a lot of the exposure there. And these are just fundamental uh, building blocks before you get even to the, the fancier, cool stuff that people like to talk about. And when I say patching, is that's basically upgrading your software. If you have an iPhone and it says new uh, system available, yeah. doing that, well, think about that for a corporation. <clears throat> if you're using a 10-year-old operating system, for them, there are a lot of exposures that have now been identified and then available on the dark web. People say, hey, if you want to take advantage of Windows XP, use this. And ah. if you haven't updated your uh, your uh, software, then you're now exposed. It's like a recipe. Do you guys have strong passwords? I do. And, uh, <laughs> and I would recommend all your listeners use a good password locker. Use yeah. a password locker. Okay. Thanks, gentlemen, Absolutely. for being with us. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Mark Turnage is CEO of Dark Owl, which monitors criminals on the dark web. Fred Knipe is CEO of CyberGRX. They're both based in Denver and joined us for Disruptors, our series about entrepreneurship in Colorado. It's graduation season, and we've been listening to the advice of commencement speakers across the state. Today, the student body president at the University of Northern Colorado, that's Tim Hernandez, he told the audience in Greeley the other day about a similar ceremony when he finished eighth grade. The night before my eighth grade continuation, I asked my dad where I could buy a pair of dress shoes. My dad took me to everybody's favorite store, Ross Dress for Less. Yeah. He took me to Ross Dress for Less. We spent $12 on a pair of black dress shoes. The only problem was that the shoes were a size 10, and in the eighth grade, I wore a much smaller size. I expressed my concern, and my dad responded in the thing that I'm pretty sure every dad says, and he said, well, you know, there's room to grow. And I trusted him because my dad has always known best. But what my dad didn't know is that one week earlier, I had submitted my final poetry anthology for my eighth grade English class. And I was excited when I hit it. I spent countless hours writing and rewriting and doing all these different types of things because I found out in the eighth grade that I love the process of writing. So when I turned it in, I shared my excitement. I said, you know what, miss? I, I think this is what I want to do. I love writing. This is for me. And she replied to me and she said, oh, Tim, that's great. But people like you don't write. Her response has stuck with me from the time that I crossed the stage of my eighth grade continuation in my first pair of dress shoes until I stand on this stage and speak to you today. 
You see, when my eighth grade teacher told me people like you don't graduate, what she's talking about are historical groups of people in our country who are told that they do not embody the capability for success. That success cannot and will not ever be their own. Well, I'm proud to say that today I stand on the stage of a college graduation in the exact same pair of dress shoes I wore in my eighth grade continuation. They're beaten, they're rugged, they got holes, the soles are falling off, but as my dad promised, the shoes finally fit. Tim Hernandez dedicated his speech to all the graduates who at some point were led to believe they couldn't succeed, and he challenged them to encourage others. Go tell them that we're making space for their success. Go tell them that we are working to uproot any system that inhibits their capability for success. Go tell them that we are rebuilding the world and that we are putting empathy, kindness, and hope in every brick. And most of all, go tell them that we need their help and that we cannot change the world without them. So thank you so much for your time. Si se puede, viva la raza. And congratulations once again. Tim Hernandez, student body president at the University of Northern Colorado. He's from Denver. Very few Americans hunt somewhere around 4%. The number has been dropping, in fact, for decades. CPR's Western Slope reporter, Stina Sieg, tells us Colorado is trying to reverse the trend, a heads-up that you'll hear a gunshot in her story. 14-year-old Braden Martinez pokes his rifle out of a dark hunting blind and into the barely-lit wilderness of far northwest Colorado. A few decoy turkeys are trying to woo the real thing. It works. Get ready, buddy. At his side, wildlife technician Colton Murray looks through binoculars to spot the blue head and fanned tail of a wild male turkey. The tom is flanked by several hens, all walking with purpose down a dirt road toward the plastic birds. Martinez, who's visually impaired, looks into a cell phone camera attached to his gun scope, which magnifies the scene. It's just after 6 a.m., and Martinez has already got himself a bird. Murray and wildlife officer Mike Suaro slap the grinning teen on the back. That was the big boss boy right there. Oh, bro. (laughs) Martinez is one of seven youngsters, ages 11 to 15, paired with an experienced hunter in this Colorado Parks and Wildlife program. The idea is to give kids a hunting mentor and an experience their parents may not be able to. Marie says the loss of this tradition helps fuel a disconnect between young people and the food on their plates. When you actually see, you know, the birth and the death and, and where your food comes from and, and the cycle of things, you get a, a better appreciation for, for things, you know. And that appreciation is crucial, Murray says. Like most wildlife agencies, Parks and Wildlife is funded by the fees hunters pay. Fewer hunters means less money. And officials say that could mean less conservation. 
which is why the agency is so interested in kids like 13-year-old Savannah Jones, who also just got her first turkey. Yes, it was so much fun. I I would definitely want to go again. As dawn turns into full-blown morning, the hunters head to the group's meeting spot, a remote ranch house. Savannah's 11-year-old sister, Haley, admits the moment she pulled the rifle's trigger, she was scared. Shaking, like vibrating, and so nervous that just something would go wrong. But nothing did. And both sisters are taking dozens of pounds of raw turkey home to Fruta. In fact, six of the seven kids have bagged a turkey. The rush of success is everywhere. Awesome, isn't it? Get her done? Yeah. Cool. 6.05, he's down. <laughs> John Arthurs, known as Catfish, helped his grandson take his first ever turkey. A handlebar mustache over his big smile, Catfish says this is his 42nd year hunting turkeys, or thunder chickens, as they're called in his home state of Missouri. He says teaching kids is his favorite thing. Because they're the next generation of hunting. If, if we lose this generation... You know, our sport could be lost. As the young hunters tell one another about their mornings, Catfish mimics a gobble for 13-year-old Jenna Hassan. I give up. (laughs) You're too good at this. But she keeps trying with her own turkey call. A round piece of slate she rubs a wooden peg across. A little slower, just yelp, 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 yelp. There you go. Hassan had never hunted before and can only think of one kid at her middle school in Aurora who does. She walks over to her turkey, lying in a lifeless row with the others, and she feels a little bit of remorse. Because, like, they're such a beautiful bird. But as she strokes its feathers, shining metallic in the sun, she also feels proud. Just accomplishment and know that I, can, uh, I could do more. Jenna's older sister got a turkey, too. Their father, Al, has been hunting since he was 18, but he never thought his daughters would be interested. Until now. I think they caught the bug, unfortunately or fortunately. So they're, they're done for life, I think. Wildlife officials sure hope so. The future of the sport is at stake. In Moffat County, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. A frequent knock against governors who run for president is that they lack foreign policy experience. Yesterday, former Colorado Democrat John Hickenlooper, Democratic governor that is, laid out his view of global security for us. Today, the presidential candidate answers a few questions about how he has shaped his views on foreign affairs. Like, who has he turned to for guidance? Well, you know, there's uh, any number of think tanks and certainly the Woodrow Wilson Institute in Washington, D.C. has always been useful. I haven't been down there in a number of months, but the uh, Aspen Institute has a what they call the Aspen Security Group. There are a lot of different places. And Colorado has six military bases, uh, including NORAD. So we have a pretty strong concentration of military, uh, let's call it military intelligence here as well. Uh, in addition to that, we have the National Center of Cybersecurity down in Colorado Springs that we started. But more than that, a lot of the cybersecurity budgeting and strategic planning takes place in Colorado. So when you mentioned, say, the Aspen Institute or Woodrow Wilson, is it that you met with people there? Is it that they handed you briefings? Uh, what does that look like? Well, 
uh, again, the Council on Foreign Affairs, we were, I was there a month and a half ago. So you go to hear someone speak, you read the briefings. But, you know, a lot of what, I mean, I've gone on, uh, I don't know, a dozen diplomatic economic development trips to other countries. And a lot of times that's our, our first relationships with Israel. And I end up with a, a one-on-one meeting with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, we established a very strong cybersecurity relationship that continues to this day. We exchange best practices in water conservation. We had a, a whole team of Israeli security personnel came and helped us design anti-terrorist systems and protections for Denver International Airport. So a lot of that type of international diplomacy, it, it comes from relations and making an effort to get out and, and expose yourself and meet foreign leaders and find common ground in places where you can actually provide benefit to them and they can provide benefit to us. That is John Hickenlooper, Colorado's last governor, and he's seeking the Democratic nomination for president. We spoke by phone Tuesday. Next, an ordained minister who says many people don't belong in church, at least not the traditional kind. Instead, Pastor Jerry Herships of Denver says it's possible to find God at a yoga class, on a horse, or even in bars where he preaches once a week. Herships, a former comedian, has written Rogue Saints, Spirituality for Good-Hearted Heathens. And Pastor, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. Appreciate it. an ordained Methodist minister, and yet you write, I think we make loving God too big a deal. Yeah. Provocative. What's your point? Uh, I I think sometimes it's easy to say that and sort of uh, put the period on it and let that be the whole story. And I think... uh, like with any relationship, if you hear somebody all the time saying, wow, you're wonderful, you're great, man, I love you, but it's not reflected in their actions, you start to question the words a little bit. So I think it's it's love God, dot, 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 and what does that look like? How do we make that real? What is that in action? In action, yes. You really don't like the idea of original sin, reading your book. <laughs> um, you write it's not even in the Bible. yeah. Yeah, it really isn't. The, for me, it's much more, if you're going to start with original, you start at the beginning. And there was something before this sin. That was the original good. And I'd much prefer to, to start the conversation with original good rather than the mistake made later on. Let's start, if we're going to say original, at the beginning. What is the benefit of that? Is it about avoiding shame? Well, God knows uh, the the world of religion is uh, got a cottage industry on shame. I mean, we do a pretty good job with that. And I really think what's sad is uh, that wasn't Jesus' MO. It certainly wasn't God's MO. So why do we make it ours? And so I think there's much more this idea that, look, there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. And I think if we live with that idea, you know, God didn't love us because of who we are. God loves us because who God is. Huh. There's nothing I could do to make God love me less. Right. That's right. But I could do some pretty awful things. Sure. Absolutely. And there's no question that those would be awful things, but that's not going to affect. God loves you because of the way God interacts, not because of what you do, because then it would be a conditional love. Ryan, if you check all these boxes, then you get a lollipop, then you get my love. That's not the way my understanding of God functions. But then doesn't that mean it's just a free-for-all? Uh, you know what? People will say that all the time, uh-huh. especially they go, well, if you don't have any rules, then cats and dogs are going to be sleeping together. It's going to be chaos. 
And that's with the assumption that the only reason we do good is to stay within our lane. And I think we're built in a different way. I think we're built to do good naturally. And, yeah, there are going to be some mistakes, but I don't automatically assume if we take away those punishments, ooh, it's going to be chaos. I just don't huh. buy it. Okay. We could debate that alone I for an hour. I'll see you at the lunch. Yeah. Uh, so, Jerry Herships, your ministry is called After Hours. As I mentioned, you meet in bars. How did that come about? Uh, you know, I think I got ordained, and uh, I think a lot of money and uh, people in Vegas lost a lot of dough. <laughs> I think they, they didn't think I'd make it. And when I did, um, I, I had bartended for a number of years. I, I had been a bartender for over a decade. And you, I, you think actually a slew of bars in Denver and the acknowledgments in this book. Yeah, well, there's a number of Don's Mixed Drinks is in there. The Irish Rover has been the best. Both those bars have been fantastic to us. And uh, and we're all over the city. We'll go to different places. And, and they're they're lovely people, and they want to have... People in bars want to have these conversations. They just struggle sometimes with church. So how did you come to the idea of hosting in a bar? Is it just because you had worked in so many of them? Yeah, I think I knew that the conversation already existed. It was how do we give it a format? How do we how do we provide a safe space for people to ask hard questions without feeling like, to come back to it, they're going to be shamed for even asking the question. I knew bars were empty on Mondays, and so if I could bring in you know, the first one we ever did, we had 90 people. And uh, I'll tell you, you bring in 90 people in a bar on a Monday night, bar owners find Jesus real quick. I mean, it worked, <laughs> out, it, it worked out great. It worked out really great. Uh, you quote the English poet William Blake. A good local pub has much in common with a church, except that a pub is warmer and there's more conversation. <laughs> uh, in fact, you end each chapter of your book, Rogue Saints, which is really about spirituality, with a drink recipe. Yes, I, I understand that meeting in a bar is hip and, you know, it's counterculture, but is it sacrilegious? No, I don't think so. In fact, Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine, and my understanding is it was a very good wine. Uh, I think we've placed that on the Bible. I think we've placed that into religion, but I really don't see proof that it's sacrilegious. I mean, over and over again, we could read in the Bible where God wants us to have joy, where there is enjoy your wine, eat your bread, uh, have your your life with happiness and joy. It's not a subject that's that's counter to the Bible. And yet, of course, alcohol can be addictive. Alcohol can be terrible for your health. It's ruined lives. Uh, how sensitive do you have to be to that? We are constantly. We, we are always very... In fact, you in the book, you'll see that we make that disclaimer early on that, look... You know, I was a bartender for a long time. I'm a certified sommelier. I, I, I love that culture, and that's fascinating, but all things in good measure. And that's, I mean, a lot of damage has been done with alcohol and with church being done poorly. <laughs> and so <laughs> it's not, it's not so much the thing as much as the abuse of the thing. You have a new definition, I understand, of bar food. Of bar food. Peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Yes, that is correct. Yeah, we, we start every... Uh, Every after hours, we start by making 100 peanut butter and jelly lunches, and we take them down to Civic Center Park, and we hand them out to the homeless. have been doing that for almost nine years, and we've handed out about a quarter million lunches to folks that, that are hungry and need them. You know, this is part of your outreach at After Hours. In fact, I think we met you at one point in Civic Center Park right yes. around Christmas as you handed out meals and coats. You had uh, this career in comedy. I think you signed a contract to write for Jay Leno. You emceed at Hollywood Improv, performed with Judd Apatow, who's gone on to a big career in movies. How did that lead you to, to Divinity School? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, right? I, I was uh, we had left LA after the Northridge quake and moved to Florida, and I was still traveling quite a bit. My son was six months old, and uh, comedy on the road is is not the best gig if you're a new father. And so I realized there had to be something else. And uh, pastor that was in Orlando said, "Have you ever thought about ministry?" And I said, "You know, I I like brown liquor. I curse like a sailor. Um, I, I'm not the guy. I'm not the right guy." And to his credit, he said, "Maybe you're just the guy." He goes, maybe we need to stop putting pastors on these pedestals and instead, you know, acknowledge that we're limping along with everybody else. And, and let's let's sort of go down the path together. Denver Pastor Jerry Herships is my guest. His new book is Rogue Saints, Spirituality for Good-Hearted Heathens. Do you ever stop being a comedian fundamentally <laughs> or is this just a different audience for it? Much to my wife's chagrin, probably not. She would she would probably say no. But uh you know, I, I, I'm not big on telling jokes, but I think we all are who we are. You know, there are interesting numbers to support some of what you've been telling us. According to Pew, 63% of Americans believe in God and are absolutely certain of God's existence. 63%. Another 20% describe themselves as fairly certain. So you add those together, you get 83% of the people in the country right. saying God is real. But only a third attend a weekly service. Right. What's the disconnect in your mind? I think people, first off, I think people struggle with institutions at this point in time across the board. I don't think just in their spiritual life. I think everywhere. And I think there is uh, maybe historically a dogma and a strong uh, rules-driven um, understanding of what organized religion is that, that uh gives people pause. And I think people want to have that connection to something bigger. They want to have connection to a community, and they want to serve. They just aren't sure if church is exactly the right fit. Yes, this idea of connection is one of the key ideas that you lay out in the book, um, this way to connect. You also talk about finding a tribe. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Yeah. I think you got to find your people. I, I think we are in a ridiculously disconnected society right now. And I think how how we connect both to something bigger, which I think everybody wants to do, they want to be a part of something bigger than just themselves, and then to find other people that have similar interests and similar likes and that they can do that together, I think that's a winning formula. And I think you add you add service to it, which is really after hours. Uh, it, it It's a pretty... It's a pretty solid hit. Service, kindness, I yes. think you call it in the book. Is that a bit like the golden rule? Uh, very similar, although I think it, it actually goes beyond the golden rule. I think the golden rule is due to others as as you would want to be done unto. And I think the rule beyond that is due unto others as you think they would want to be done unto. The way I want to be treated might not be the way you want to be. It may be in a different context. It may be through words or actions or something different. So really to dive down and look at the other person and say, what, what, is, what works for them and how can, I, how can I help them with that? Your ministry, as we've said, includes feeding uh, folks who are experiencing homelessness in Denver, offering communion in addition to a meal and maybe a coat. In what ways do you see Christ in the people you serve? Yeah, I see a humility and I see a... Uh, and honesty about who they are. They, when you're on the street, you've lost all pretense. There, there's no uh, pretending things are great. Uh, they also have taught me uh, joy. I mean, there is most people go, man, it's got to be hard down there. And I'll be honest, there is as much, if not more, laughter in that line and at our table in Civic Center Park at noon 
than there are in many churches that I've been to. And to look and say, wow, they've been able to find joy. They've been able to find some sort of happiness and to be able to, to laugh through their circumstance. And that suddenly makes me go, why am I so upset we're out of Diet Coke? You know, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I should lighten up a bit. We've spoken a lot about Christianity. To wrap up, uh, do you think your approach works in other religious traditions? I do. I do. I, I, I think, especially if we continue with that lineage of how do I be a part of something bigger? How do I find people that, that share my interest and, and that are my community? And then how do I take that and, and go out into the world and serve to, to put more love in the world? I think that's a winning combination across the board. And it's not foreign for a church to act that way. No, or it is synagogue not. I mean, at all. Yeah. I mean, in in fact, I would say that, that probably marketing is the biggest piece. Lots of churches do amazing stuff. It's just a matter of letting people know they do it. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Jerry Herships heads the After Hours Ministry in Denver and serves daily lunch for those experiencing homelessness in Denver Civic Center Park. His new book is Rogue Saints, Spirituality for Good-Hearted Heathens. Coming up, Atomic Radio. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR News. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was a little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use kill committee. It's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed? Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Artist Georgia O'Keeffe was called the mother of American modernism. Her flower paintings are synonymous with the Southwest. She was an inspiration to many artists, even though some critics thought she was overrated. Well, this is the last weekend for a show at the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver, which puts O'Keeffe's work alongside artists she influenced. CPR's Andrea Dukakis went to the museum and spoke with curator Elisa Author, who explained that O'Keeffe's commercial success came at a cost. She received quite a bit of criticism of um, her style as too feminine, too erotic, too sexual, too precious, too tidy, too pretty, for instance. All of those terms are gendered, right? So they are kind of negative connotations for femininity. And so that impacted the reception of her work throughout her career, and it continues to impact it. And then she has huge name recognition popularity outside of the art world, and that can sometimes also impact negatively one's reputation in the art world. So commercial success can be viewed as somewhat um, suspicious or a sign that you are not a rigorous artist. Fame sort of hurts you. It can, yeah. What are some specific examples of criticism against O'Keeffe's paintings? I have some of those here. So this is a good example from uh, a critic by the name of Robert Hughes. He wrote, Her paintings of skulls and pelvises in the landscape mostly verge on kitsch surrealism. And there's other examples where she is dismissed as a dorm room poster artist, right? So that, again, it expresses a kind of popularity that is seen as, like, degrading of your reputation in the art world. And she's not alone. There's other artists who experience this. Alexander Calder is a great example of mm. someone whose achievement in the art world is still being reassessed because of this problem of, of popularity. How much did this criticism, this kind of criticism, lead you to do this exhibition? Well, I was very interested in this criticism, 
and then there was a recent exhibition at the Whitney in 2009 that began a re big reassessment of her work. And I happened to be a research fellow at the George O'Keefe Museum and uh, Research Center around that time. We know a lot about O'Keefe's work. We know a lot about her biography. In fact, we know huge amounts about her biography, but we really don't know anything related to the way artists working today might respond to her work or remain quite interested in it. And this exhibition isn't meant to pay tribute, per se, to O'Keefe. Mm -hmm. In fact, there are only eight of her works on display here. Mm -hmm. And those are paired with the work of a dozen contemporary painters. Were there any artists that you talked to and approached that their paintings look so much like O'Keeffe, and yet they said that her work didn't come into their work? Not really, because this show isn't about iconographical affiliation. So it's not like we have an O'Keeffe skull and then a, an, a painter who's, who's painting skulls next to each other. These are all artists working in an abstract vein, and those kinds of comparisons you can't really make in this show. It's, it's much more of an elective affinity to O'Keeffe or a kind of conversation that, that artists today are having with O'Keeffe that you may not suspect, which is why we include quite a bit of the artist's own writing in the exhibition, because they can walk you through it in ways that you're not going to be able to do just making comparisons to, you know, between the O'Keeffe works and the, the contemporary works. What do you hope people come away with in terms of O'Keeffe's paintings and her reputation? Do you want to reframe how people view her? It's an opportunity to look at O'Keeffe through the lens of artists working today. You can come to new observations about O'Keeffe. You, like you may know so much about her biography, but literally nothing about what makes her expressive style so distinctive. And a lot of it is just compositional decisions, the use of abrupt shift of scale, juxtaposition of color, and the way she moves between representation and abstraction. Those are all very, very distinctive aspects of her work that I think you can come out of this show with, with a much greater appreciation for. Elisa, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Curator Elisa Author speaking with CPR's Andrea Dukakis back in February. After Effect, Georgia O'Keeffe and Contemporary Painting closes this weekend at the Museum of Contemporary Art, Denver. You're hearing a guitar tune recorded by a group of atoms, quantum atoms. Colorado scientists have found a way to use quantum science to hear music in mono and stereo. This is called atomic radio. Chris Holloway is a research scientist at NIST in Boulder. That's the National Institute of Standards and Technology. You might know it as the place where the atomic clock lives. He developed this musical technique. And Chris, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you for having me. How did you think of using atoms and music together? You know, um, probably about eight years ago, there's a group of us at NIST and then a couple other groups around the world were looking at uh, trying to use atoms, more importantly, atomic sensors, to detect various different things. One of those is electromagnetic fields. And um, so we worked on this for a while, but if we put sort of seriousness, seriousness aside, there is a quote from a uh, physicist Richard Feynman, who said that physics is like sex, that where it has a useful purpose, sometimes that's not why we do it. And this is an example where we took a serious topic of oh. trying to develop autonomic sensors and applying it to sort of a fun, 
entertaining field of quantum science. Help us understand what you mean when you say atomic sensors. The idea of using atoms to detect various physical quantities. And they're capable of this. Yeah, they are. You know, atoms, we've used them for a number of years. The atomic clock is a good example. It keeps track of time and frequency. Um, and people have been using it to do magnetic sensors with. Um, and in the past, about eight years ago, we started trying to move it to start looking at electromagnetic fields or in particular electric fields. And that can include music. It can include music because the electric or magnetic field, we would encode some type of music signature on these electromagnetic fields, and then we can detect the field and then the information in those fields with these atoms. And so these atoms are sensing, reading music. These are special atoms called Reberg or Ryberg atoms. Yes, exactly. Yes. And what what is so special about them? Uh, A Reberg atom is an atom where... We've taken one of its electrons, and we've excited it to a very high energy state, and that's considered a Reberg atom. And when it gets up to this high energy state, they're very susceptible and sensitive to electric fields. So they make very good sensors of electric fields. And then how do you close the loop? So they're sensing something, and then you've got to somehow record that. That's right. Well, what we do, we use atoms. Or we put these atoms in a glass container. Okay. And to excite them to these Reberg states, we shine lasers onto them. The lasers get these atoms excited up to these Reberg states. They're all rambunctious. Then we turn on these electric fields, and these electric fields cause the atoms to change. The lasers detect that change, and we monitor the response of a laser with something called a photodetector. It has a voltage output. We just basically take that voltage output, put it into a speaker, or put it into a computer so we can record music. And you might... Here's something like this, another example of atomic radio. Um, Okay, you know, it's not the highest fidelity. No, it's not. You know... Obviously, this would not be the way that you would record music or uh, play your guitar and record your guitar. However, it's fun. And, you know, you hear a little bit of distortion in there. Uh Uh-huh. And that distortion, you can almost think that we've made an atomics effects pedal. And I like it because it's got this little grungy sound. It almost sounds like I did it in my garage. Uh Uh-huh. So it's, uh, you know, it's it's almost like an LP as opposed to a CD, right? It's got the little... Uh, crackly sound that you would have when you used to play CDs, or excuse me, LPs. Now yeah, CDs. I still do. I'm one yeah. of those, re- you know, retro hipsters, I yeah. suppose. If you could have any musician in the world in your lab to record with the atoms. No, that, that, that's a good question. Who would I, it be? I've, you know, my envision is to expand this a little bit, and I've always wanted to bring Neil Young in oh. and have him lay down a couple of tracks of maybe Cowgirl in the Sand with some of his heavy distortion on top of this grunge sound. I think, uh, you know, it, it would be good to have a real musician in there playing, but it would be a nice little, you know, added benefit to this uh, cute little trick we're doing. Neil Young, if you're listening. Yeah, if you know his publisher, please have him give me a call. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll cut his next CD with the Reberg Adams. We've been talking about the fun of this. Uh, it, it, is quantum science, though, in need of more good people? And is is part of this about recruiting, do you think? Yeah, you know, like I said, there is a serious side of this. Obviously, we're trying to understand what these atoms can do for next technology, for sensors and everything. 
But to do something fun and entertaining is good because I think this whole idea of quantum physics, atomic physics can be very esoteric. Yeah, I think that's right. And not only esoteric, you know, it's unapproachable to a lot of people. And to get, you know, it's not just quantum physics. All science in general needs more people. The U.S. in general is having a shortage of just people in the quantum sciences, but in the workforce, um, you know, STEM workforce. And if we can make something approachable to students, then it, that maybe it, it appears as um, quantum physics is not so esoteric, and it maybe help bring more people into the uh, workforce. Thanks for being with us. Chris, Chris Holloway, research scientist at the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Boulder. We spoke about how he uses quantum atoms to record music. And that's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.